یہ خورشید کو خورشید صاحب کو جی خورشید صاحب morocco and the cousin of the present uh, king of Morocco, uh, Mohammed VI. Uh, Mullah Hisham, as I said, was, uh, was educated at Princeton and then at Stanford University. Uh, he has uh, participated in a number of international initiatives related to peace and democracy. These activities have included serving as an observer uh, at a number of elections, including in the occupied territories, I think it was in 1996, or 95, and recently he was one of the principal advisors to the special representative of the Secretary General uh, for, of the United Nations for Kosovo. Uh, Mullah Hisham uh, uh, has expressed his, his gratitude to his alma mater uh, in, in 1994 by endowing the Institute for Trans-Regional Study of the Contemporary Middle East, North Africa, and Central uh, Asia. Um, Uh, he's author of a number of uh, articles on the Arab world, and, and uh, most uh, prominently, I think, at least as far as I know, on, on, on issues of precisely of governance uh, and democracy uh, in, uh, in, in the Arab world. And uh, his paper will be commented by uh, Professor Zafar Ishaq al-Ansari, who is a Director uh, General of Islamic Research of the Islamic Research Institute in Islamabad and is a, a very well-known, worldwide-known scholar in Islamic studies. We, we met here in Princeton many years ago, and I've had the privilege of publishing uh, one or, or more of his articles in Studia Islamica, and he has written widely on Islamic uh, uh, subjects uh, and published them in, uh, in many uh, very prestigious uh, places. Uh, he, uh, the second commentator uh, is, uh, will be uh, Bernard Haikal, who is Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at New York University, the author of Revival and Reform in Early Modern Islam, The Legacy of Muhammad al-Shawqani, who was a, a Yemeni uh, scholar. Um, and his research interests include Islamic political movements and Islamic political and legal thought particularly in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and South Asia. So we will begin uh, immediately with Mullah uh, uh, Hisham. Thank you. Thank you. Is the podium move? Yes. <coughs> well, I'd like to begin by thanking all uh, the organizers of the conference. I feel very privileged to be here with you today to talk about this, this broad subject, but hopefully we'll, we'll, <coughs> we'll be able to concentrate a few points that will be helpful for the discussion. Uh, the topic of my paper would be politics and governance in Islam. And before I begin, I'd like to say that uh, I will be talking from uh, certainly not the perspective of a alim or of a sheikh of Islam, 
but of somebody who uh, who is a, a Muslim and who is a, somebody who practices his religion, uh, not somebody who is a politician, but somebody who is immersed in politics uh, from his childhood. And these these issues are very important to us in the contemporary world and in, as, as Muslims. So again, politics and governance in Islam. I would like to transform our broadly defined topic into a precise question. What are the prospects for democratic governance in contemporary societies where Islam is a dominant religion? My objective is to approach the practices and the languages that Muslims have developed in their traditions regarding consultation, election, representation of popular will, and to be able to draw some inferences on the prospects of democratization for this whole region. This will help us better understand, I think, the nature of the so-called fundamentalist movements, and I put this fundamentalist movement because of problems of definition, we may disagree on what it means, in quotes. And also to understand how they have become the center of attention regarding Islam and politics today. We must also soberly appraise the place of these societies and these movements in the economic, political, cultural order of today's world, the historical context in which contemporary forms of Islam have evolved and are evolving. After all, today's globalized environment marked by neoliberalism and neo-imperialism poses new challenges regarding development and democracy, not only for this region, but obviously for all the regions of the world. Only then can we appreciate and analyze how we think the present historical forms of Islam are accounting for, explaining, or even offering alternatives to the present predicaments which these societies are knowing. I will begin by looking at how Muslims throughout the modern historic history of Islam, Islamic discourse, have posed the questions of governance and democracy. I want to focus on their perspectives, always plural, placing them in a historical context in which Muslims have lived and continue to live. For me, Islam is not only a divine message which is in the scriptures, but it's also how Muslims live their Islam in different contexts of the world in different time. In privileging the practices and perspectives of Muslims, I take my distance from approaches that assume a trans-historical approach of an abstractly defined Islam, one, an approach that is unfortunately uh, very common both in, in, the, in, in the media and in journalism in general, but also in, in academia. We can avoid such assumptions by treating as a historical and discursive tradition, making notes of its continuities, its ruptures, and of how Muslims confronted the need to reform, to make their ways of living, including, of course, uh, their modes of governance. Clearly, no tradition is absolutely closed, and every tradition reacts with others, borrowing, rejecting, sometimes adopting a stance of, 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 of conflict, sometimes a stance of compromise with other cultures around. Such an approach allows us to grasp the contradictory currents that run through Muslim societies and to avoid overlooking regional, ethnic, and sectarian differences that in our region are far from negligible and, of course, uh, of preventing us from stereotyping Islam and Muslims with traits that apply only to a few and about which there's a lot of disagreement in our region. And I want to begin by the late 18th century. Of course, we can begin much before, but this is not an arbitrary date. I just felt that the problem of reform within, his, within Islamic society has been posed more acutely in the 18th century. So at this date, Muslims were worrying about the, the perceived threats to their societies and to the Muslim community as a whole, threats that derived both from the internal decadence of regimes, such as the Ottoman Empire, but not also from this, also from the perceived th threats from outside in terms of military and scientific superiority, in, in this case of the West and inferiority of the Islamic world. 
Bonaparte's expedition to Egypt in 1798 through this need to reform in a very sharp relief. Thinking within a paradigm like that of the European paradigm until that time, and in more attenuated ways thereafter, held that politics and religion were two undissociable things. Muslims saw not only that their, that their forces were weak militarily, but their, the values of their great religion were now in danger. They could not even prevent French troops from desecrating the essential symbol of the community, the mosque. And there are much very, very strong accounts in this, in the literature, in the historical literature. And as this is a founding, mo founding moment uh, in this particular episode where people were, this is not something that they were very indifferent, that it was, it was the mosque was being desecrated. You have accounts of, of horses being attached to the mihrab, of troops desecrating the Quran and of urinating in the mosque and so forth. So this is a, a very, very, very traumatizing experience for Islam, which put their whole experience, their whole, their whole way of life in question. So still, hostilities did not prevent peaceful relations with non-Muslim states governed by treaties, some of long durations, called Hudna or Muhadana, and often the subject of fierce debates. Old concepts like Dar al-Harb, which we saw today, the house of war, and Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam, were of course prevalent. But because this is a discursive tradition, we saw other concepts emerge, which is the Dar al-Aman, or uh, what we call this uh, Dar al-Ahd, meaning the house of the pact. A contract in which Muslims and non-Muslims could live together and work together in peace, engage in economic and, 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 and commercial activities. It was, for example, during this time that the unique relationship between Morocco and the Alawites and the new American Republic began, for it was the first country to recognize the new American Republic. So one sees that discursive tradition is evolving. These terms are not cast in stone, but again, they are part of a discursive tradition, how Muslims live their experience, live their condition on a daily basis. These treaties also contribute to a notion of holy war that was not offensive anymore. On the contrary, it was purely defensive. For during starting this time, uh, Muslims uh, were starting to be the victims of the European jihad, even in their heartland. And they could only defend themselves in ports, which they called thugur. The prevailing idea in Muslim societies was that science and technology, primarily understood in terms of military applications, could, not, could now be imported and locally implanted to coexist with dynastic systems of governance, which gave the, the elite an influence over the choice of the monarch and gave the ulama, which are the doctors of law, a, some leverage over how uh, the, 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 essentially the king or the monarch uh, conformed to religious law, sharia. If for a long time the ideal of the caliphate had held sway, even in practice existing monarchical systems were now being slowly substituted by frameworks of divine law as elaborated by the ulamas later on. The modes of interpretation of divine law were otherwise severely limited by restrictions placed since the Middle Ages on the, on the margin of personal effort, what we call in Islam, ishtihad. Some Muslims opposed these interpretations and practices. Others defended them. Some still championed offensive holy war. Others, however, prioritized radical religious reform, blaming the community suffering on the decadence of religious feeling because, they, because of the influence of superstitious beliefs and practices. Their programs promoted a return to the original dogma and practice of the first generations of the Khalifs, a struggle against superstitions and a generalized application of the Sharia with a return to a larger 
uh, margin for the ishtihad and an emphasis on the, on the positive value of personal work. Elements of these movements, of course, were found, elements, these elements were found in, in, in movements such as the Wahhabiyya, the Ahmadiyya, the Tijaniyya. These movements organized themselves as fraternal communities overseen by a spiritual leader. And they spread through pro proselytizing and grew into networks of interconnected cells. This type of organization came to be called a brotherhood in the Muslim world. And this is not, obviously not to be confused with, uh, with, with cults or sects. These are uh, known in the, in the Maghrib as Zawiyas or, or in the Mashriq as uh, Tariqa or in, the, or in Africa as the Marabouts. Wahhabism, as we know it, was hostile to mysticism and its brotherhood was organized along quasi-military lines. We can note here that in one form or another, the basic theme that ran through all these movements was that of a return to the origins, to the original golden age of the first caliphs of Islam, to the original scriptures, the Quran, also to the original text of the, of the, the hadith, that is the words of the prophet, and to the original foundations of Islamic law sharia. This theme would remain a staple of most subsequent Islamic reform movements, even those with very different agendas. In the 20th century, for example, Salafism has become the term for movements that seek to return to the Islamic origin. And it has been used to define both the autocratic and puritanical Wahhabist Islam of Saudi Arabia, but also the more tolerant and open and modernizing Islam of, uh, of independent Morocco. The Brotherhood of Fraternal Movements were not alone in resisting the imperialist advance and preaching reform. The ulamas did the same to the extent that Muslim countries were now either threatened by colonialism or were under the direct rule of colonialism. And they still enjoyed great prestige in the community, the ulama, as uh, uh, interpreters of the scripture, but also as intermediaries between the population and the, the foreign power. In, Sulayt, in the Sunni Islam, they began a reform movement that tried to reconcile faith and reason and to conceive political institutions appropriate to the new situation. In Shi'i community, they tried to resolve the question of the role of the clergy in the defense of the community. As the Ottoman Empire declined, the conjuncture rose that encouraged a hopeful emphasis on nationality as the site of renewal for Muslim and Arab world. Among Sunnis, the biggest proponent of this reformism was, of course, Muhammad Abdu, and, it, and his, uh, his, uh, his thought was founded on the concept of watan, or country, as the basis for the Muslim nation's solidarity within, of course, the broader framework of the Muslim Ummah, which stretched from Indonesia to, to Morocco. He proposed that Islam and rationalism were completely reconcilable, and this opened the road to scientific research and to technological research. He also proposed a traditional notion of consultation, which we call in Islam shura, could now be expanded to mean, expanded to mean uh, democratic elections and Western-style parliamentary institutions. Nonetheless, the disciples of Abdu, especially Rashid Rida, held on to the ideal of the caliphate, held on very firmly to it. If the ideal of the caliphate was left behind by the facts on the terrain in day-to-day in, in -day politics, uh, Ali Abdul Razik's book in the 30s was a crucial intervention in that it brought this debate back to the forefront. It brought it in terms of a debate which, uh, which first appeared in the history of Islam uh, with the Mu'tazila, with the death uh, of the Prophet. But here it came back to the forefront and it opened a vigorous, even tumultuous discussion. It asserted that the institution of the Caliphate was built on no good reason or with no good reason on an unnecessary interpretation of the scriptures and thus 
it could be uh, left behind. And Muslims could do without it. And they were then free to choose a democratic regime able to respond to the constraints and to the exigencies of their time. Such a line of thought at least implicitly recognized class interests in the context of an imagined liberal Muslim state. It is hard to imagine uh, Muslims between the two wars thinking in terms of Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam, show the, the discursive evolution again, and even less uh, in terms of the trilogy Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Harb, or Dar al-Ahd, House of the Pact. When Abdu died, colonialism had spread by the beginning of the First World War, and it covered almost all of the Arab Muslim world, except for Arabia, where the Saudi dynasty would soon be installed with the help of the uh, Wahhabi network. The aftermath of the, of the First World War, however, changed the terms of the debate among Muslims. Any hope for reinvigoration of the Arab and Muslim nations was dashed by the European seizure of the fragments of the declining Ottoman Empire as spoils of war. And by the 1930s, nationalism, whether secular or religious, held sway everywhere, and the demand for independence and an end to the colonial system rallied Muslims from North Africa to the Middle East to the Indian subcontinent. And within these struggles, one could find a heady mix of secular pan-Arabist, secular socialist, reformist, fraternal Islamist, which in this, call we, in this case we call Salafi, and traditional quietist. By quietist, I know there was a debate about this today. We certainly don't mean passive. We mean that the form of resistance was one of, of, was one of, of, you know, of entrenchment. So these tendencies coexisted within a broad national, nationalist framework uh, 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 that characterized the struggle. And if one tendency dominated, the others did not disappear, but remained alive in a subcurrent that crossed and overdetermined the general trajectory of the, of, the, of the struggle for independence. Thus, throughout the challenges that have faced the Muslim world, there was always a space for diversity and debate regarding precisely this question of the modes of governance. How Muslims are to be governed, or how they are to govern themselves, rather. Uh, awareness of this diversity can help us avoid Muslims, avoid lumping together Muslims in one ummah with a single mind. When we talk about contemporary fundamentalist movement or recent dogmatic trends, we must not forget that these more democratic tendencies and the wide-ranging debates, their legacy which, which remains and which endures with us today. Indeed, we now focus on the Islamic components of political opposition. Let us not forget that until recently, it was the more secular tendencies that dominated political life and political discourse in the Arab and Muslim world. After World War II, events like the Algerian Revolution became models that tended to place the Arab-Muslim struggles within the general context of third world anti-imperialism. The struggle for the Palestinian cause, which became and still remains the central point and the central parameter by which Muslims evaluate the treatment uh, of the West uh, also encourages a secular and democratic definition of political nodes and of political objectives. Finally, the unavoidable implications of Arab and Muslim countries in Cold War rivalries helped to form and deform political discourse and practice in ways that, as you know, had little to do with Islam. Ironically, it was within this last framework via the aggressive fomenting of, of the most radical jihadist forces by the United States and its allies against the former Soviet Union uh, that the most uh, radical and problematic re-Islamization of contemporary Muslim politics 
was so efficiently engendered, uh, and that beginning in the, in the 80s. In the 20th century, the themes that emerged in the forefront of debate for Arabs and Muslims were related to problems of colonialism, and including Zionism, nationalism, and new forms of Islamic militancy. Most of the Islamist currents that run through the 20th century, again, sought a return to the foundations of Islam and are considered divergence, uh, divergent branches of the Salafiyya. Strictly speaking, however, modern Islamic fundamentalism as we know it today was not born until the emergence or came with the emergence of, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in 1928 and under the leadership of Hassan al-Banna. Although less socially conservative than Wahhabiyya, it also struck a stricter return to the fundamental precepts, militating for a society totally governed by religious law, including in its forms of organization. The program of the Brotherhood emphasized redistribution, justice, and recommended the education of women, even while maintaining that their strict task was to, was to, was to educate the family's cell in Islamist principles, in Islamic principles. Organized in cells called families which integrated religion, mutual aid, education, support activities, and spiritual counseling, the movement quickly grew in the milieus of the primary and secondary education and in the middle classes, while maintaining traditional ties to the bourgeoisie, to the clergy, uh, uh, and, to the, uh, and to the bazaar. The organizing structure of families and federations of families allowed for considerable autonomy within the regions, and they were all uh, gathered under one umbrella, which was at that time the Supreme Council, itself led by Hassan al-Banna. This network, very active and supple, insisted on justice but rejected class struggle. It championed solidarity within the community without questioning private property or economic liberalism. And if it threatened the political uh, domination uh, uh, of the high bourgeoisie and the aristocracy and also threatened the British hegemony and the British project over Egypt, it was not that threatening for the, uh, for the upper class's economic interest. And its attitude towards the monarchy was one of opposition but also one of accommodation until uh, 1948 with the assassination of Hassan al-Banna in a generalized atmosphere of violence, uh, 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 mutual violence between the military branch of the Brotherhood and, and the regime. Within the Brotherhood, there is an ongoing tension between partisans of, the, of an immediate conquest of power and those who sought and who seek long-term uh, religious reform and the conquest of power through uh, non-violent means. Among the fierce, first tendency were those branches during the 70s and 80s which sought to total break with modern, with modern Muslim society considered to be fallen in an irrecuperable situation of impiety and ignorance which we call in Islamic term the jahiliya. The most influential activist and theoretician associated with this movement of course was Sayyid al-Qutb whose work helped the Brotherhood, helped propel the Brotherhood to the forefront of fundamentalist movements throughout the, the, the region. Qutb rallied against impiety and idolatry of, against modern secular life, the injustice of capitalism and all forms of government and politics that did not derive from God. And that included democracy, pan-Arabism, socialism, nationalism, which he saw as an obstacle to an Islamist state. And I quote, for him, everything around is jahiliya, perceptions, beliefs, manners, morals, culture, art and literature, laws, regulations, including a good part of what we consider Islamic culture. Qutb's impassioned criticism of modern Muslim societies and his denunciation of Muslim leaders as infidels gave powerful religious sanction to the most, uh, to the most radically rejectionist fundamentalist currents uh, throughout the region. 
after a sojourn in the United States, largely contributed to his to his denunciation. He saw uh, American culture even as more impious or the, the zenith of, of impiety. And these themes, of course, uh, he articulated so forcefully, st- struck a deep chord among oppressed Muslims throughout the region, not only in, in, in Egypt. Repression against the Brotherhood was severe, especially after the death of Nasser and after the assassination of Sadat. And ironically, the, the Sadat regime had at that time encouraged uh, Muslim fundamentalism in, in Egypt in, in, this, in the 70s and, and 80s as a, as a counterweight to the democratic left, which was making advances in the, in the political camp. Repression has been, uh, had contributed to deepening and widening the movement, creating a milieu of intense debate among a large number of brothers incarcerated in camps, which were later dispersed as refugees throughout the region and in the West. The history of this movement provides, I think, a good illustration of the nature of the politicized religious organizations within Sunni Islam. Their innovative strategies of mobilization, but also their, their programmatic and their, and their political ambiguities and also uh, how uh, they entered into relationship and to conflict with states and other formations. Two Pakistani organizations demonstrate the two tendencies that one finds in the Egyptian Brotherhood, which we just described, but it's also something that can be generalized to the whole region. There were two approaches to the conquest of power. From the beginning, the Jama'at Tablighi chose to ignore the state, to work within the base of society, preaching strict Islamic law, morality, obedience to religious law, piety, daily devotional, and mutual aid. And its, its adherents traveled in small groups, either by foot and later by modern transport, uh, to, to bring over, uh, to, to convert everybody to this cause, and uh, one which would contribute to a Muslim state, the only way for the community to reconstitute itself. On the other end of the political spectrum, you had, of course, uh, the movement uh, called Jama'at Islami, which was built on the ideas of Maududi from lived from 1923 to 1975. And according to him, nationalism itself represents infidelity and piety. He accused religious legal scholars of collaboration with the British occupier, denounced all European influences, and maintained that the Muslim community must be strong and strong to be re-Islamized again and uh, to save the community from jahiliya, He rejected Muslim regimes as kufr from uh, uh, takfir and considered practicing the five pillars of Islam as preparation for jihad against government that usurped sovereignty which belonged to God alone. And the, and the word popular sovereignty is one associated with democracy, but in this, in this, in this movement, the, the word of sovereignty of God in Arabic is hakimiyah. I don't know what it is in Urdu, but... It's, it's a term that one finds throughout the spectrum. The same one? So, again, for Hakimiya, which belongs to God alone. And this movement uh, has not registered you know, consequent uh, uh, electoral, uh, an electoral place in Pakistan since independence. But, however, its legacy is very strong, and, it's, and it remains, and it's, uh, uh, it has a strong resonance throughout, throughout the region. Now, when we look at the other, uh, the other Islamic tradition, of course, among Shiites, the key movement distinguished by its clerical roots is that which led to the Iranian Revolution in 1975. And it was built gradually during the 20 previous years on the circles of the mullahs and of the theological students, mainly in the city of, of Qom. 
from 1962, Khomeini was his key figure, opposing the authoritarian and the uh, uh, inegalitarian modernism uh, fostered by the Shah. After he vilified the invention of secular time and of uh, the Persian Empire, uh, he took up exile in the principal center of Shiism in, in Iraq, which was the Najaf. As distinguished from other leaders of fundamentalist movement, Khomeini was an ayatollah formed in the clergy and part of the networks of the Mujahids. His ideas would gain popularity among students, but also in the bourgeoisie and the bazaar and among the poor in the countryside and, and the towns. Khomeini's political genius lay in his rejection of traditional religious and clerical quietism. And the parallel he, draw, he drew between the Shah's tyranny and that of uh, Muawiyah, which was the first caliph of the Umayyad dynasty, who killed uh, Ali's son uh, Hussein. Uh, and in doing so, he, the, the Khomeini was a political, really a political animal. He knew exactly what, 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 what cord uh, to, to, to strike in Shiite community. And the par parallel resonated very powerfully, persuading the clerics to save the community and to act before its d destruction and before the coming of the uh, occulted imam, which is in Shia tradition, the 12th imam, the Mahdi al-Muntadhar. The subtext of the discourse was, of course, that he was a savior, but for technical reasons in the religion, he could not explicitly uh, say so. Khomeini also took advantage uh, uh, from the work done by Ali Shariati, a Muslim thinker educated in, in Iran, but also educated in the West, who built upon the, the, the writings of third world, third worldists and Marxists like Fanon and Sartre. In his vocabulary, which became popular with students towards the end of 60s, uh, the Marxist terminology of oppression and, and class struggle was adapted to Islamic terms. And thus one could find that statements like oppressors and oppressed became mustad'afin, mustaqbinin, and in the name of God, the merciful became in the name of God of the dispossessed. This vocabulary clearly echoed the Marxist critique of class society, but implicitly enough to accommodate other currents which were uh, firmly anti-Marxist. Thus the 1979 revolution, which rallied the dissatisfied masses, as well as the democratic and left movements, found its expression in a kind of populist Islam, which now uh, could readily ally itself uh, to the left. Similarly, fundamentalist movements would split on social lines, and this th throughout the region. Uh, in Egypt, for example, they would also have difficult, even hostile relationship with the ulama and with the, with the establishment and the hierarchy uh, of the Azhar. Nor would they know how to penetrate the working class and the unions, or maintain a durable presence in the armed forces. Uh, besides uh, the killing of, uh, of, uh, of Sadat, which was a, which was a spectacular event, uh, fundamentalists uh, had a difficult time in penetrating, uh, penetrating the armed forces, and this throughout the region. Uh, even in the Sudan, uh, the, where they were allied essentially in power uh, by the army, the army used them as a facade for legitimacy, but they could not penetrate the army. The only exception to this maybe is in, is in, is in Pakistan. And even there, one cannot say that they penetrated the, 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 the army institution, but rather you know, some, the ISI uh, for reasons also which have to do more with geopolitics, but that, that's, it's another debate. Recruited from outside uh, the clerical circles, most adherents of the Muslim Brotherhood could not share the Iranian images of tyranny and messianism which were proper to the Iranian tradition. They shared with Sunnite clerics the notion of the golden age of Islam under the first caliphs, but they could not translate this or could not extract from this political value as, as of course, Khomeini did. 
And if the Iranian revolution produced a sea change in the world's perception of the power and threat of Muslim fundamentalism, it did not produce the successive waves of upheaval which was originally feared. Because it seems in the end that Muslim people of the world have an equivocal uh, equivocal relation uh, to fundamentalism. Many are attracted by the trenchant critique of injustice, corruption, foreign domination, elite decadence, and are attracted uh, to the charitable work of Islamist groups within the community. Many are also resentful of the increasing cultural hegemony of the West, and particularly of American popular culture, which is perceived as a threat to, to, to the traditional values of the society, and also as an auxiliary war, as an adjunct to economic and uh, political uh, domination. Islamists sometimes to see, seem to be or appear to be the only comprehensive force of resistance to this. This can result in political and electoral uh, support, especially when there are no other political movements working effectively for positive change. Counterbalancing this are, of course, are countercurrents that still run through the Muslim world, culturally modernist, while protective of national rights, traditions, and politically democratic. These now include new civil society movements for women's rights, for the rights of minorities, including ethnic groups and also uh, uh, religious minorities and human rights in general, based on uh, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Governing also means taking the blame, and Iran has shown us that Muslims tire of clerical dictatorship and tire of the continuous intrusions into their personal lives, no matter how Islamic the justifications are. The dissatisfaction in Iran and Afghanistan and the disgust at the carnage in Algeria have made Muslims very wary of placing Islamists in positions of power and have in return made these fundamentalist groups uh, play the political game in a way that is very, very uh, intelligent and at least they have been very careful on how they play this game. Fundamentalist parties can also be weakened by the contradiction between the need to work within the framework of national politics and the nation state and their founding ideological reference, the transnational ummah. And one or the other can become a, a, a quickly a, an opportunistic uh, rhetorical gesture which, which becomes very hollow in, in the eyes of the masses. We should not forget, too, that in the Muslim countries, there are a variety of Islamist groups, often with more differences among themselves than there are among the more secular parties. Their best prospect under foreseeable conditions would be for a share of governing power. The question of the relationship of Islamism to democracy in most contexts is an element of the larger question of how democratic institutions and a democratic culture and democratic practices are developing in this region. And one must admit that they are evolving in an uneven way, very slowly, and very erratically at best. The latest incarnation of Muslim fundamentalism, or what I call neo-fundamentalist, which has unquestionably captured the attention of the world, is a globalized transnational network with no particular role, role or function in any national political struggle, whose immediate goal is not to overthrow or reform this or that uh, Muslim regime, but to launch a jihad against the West, and in particular, the United States, on all, all fronts. Biladin is, of course, the paramount example, and the attacks on New York and Washington, presumably the responsibility of his World Islamic Front for Jihad, uh, and I quote, for Jihad against Jews and Crusaders, of which Al-Qaeda is part, have dramatically raised the stakes in confronting the relationship between Islam and modern politics. And this, not only for Muslims, but for non-Muslims also. 
and the catalog of grievances that Bin Laden and his allies recite are the colonization of Palestine by Israel with the support of the United States, the humiliation of Muslims, and the domination of Arab Muslim lands by America and its interest oils, American support for undemocratic regimes in the, reg in the region, and of course, the unholy alliance between America and the Gulf states, which has permitted the stationing of what Bin Laden calls infidels on holy land. And of course, this time, the United States is identified as the ultimate source of these evils. For these new jihadis, it is by destroying the center of impurity, the source of these evils, for th that it is by destroying this source that Muslims will sweep away their own corrupt rulers and regimes and begin to reconstitute a newly purified transnational ummah across the region. Of course, we must emphasize that the vast majority of Muslims do not share either the tactical vision or the strategic vision of these neo-fundamentals, and certainly not uh, the interpretation of Islam they promote. Most Muslims want to live in peace and dignity alongside all their neighbors, all their faiths. Most fundamentalist and political movements carry out their work legally, non-violently within their respective contexts, and have condemned the murderous tactics of these radical jihadists. In insisting on these points, however, we Muslims should not be complacent. We have to acknowledge that Bin Laden and his actions have captured the imagination, the sympathy, and the credibility of what we call in our region of the world the Arab street or the Muslim street. This is partly because of Bin Laden himself. He projects a fascinating presence on screen and in Arabic and seems to master the media events skillfully using the new Arabic satellites networks such as the Jazeera, which have broken essentially the, the, the Western monopoly over these uh, uh, global media networks. This is partly because most Muslims share the sense of grievance and insult regarding many of the issues which these new fundamentalists graft on their new mission. And I cannot stress enough with regard especially to the Palestinian issue, which is considered by Muslims the, the central parameter by which they evaluate their relationship uh, with the West. In a political universe of submission, corruption, social misery, political paralysis, many are not happy, or not unhappy rather, to see that somebody is doing appropriately something dramatic. Who else is occupying this pole of opposition? Who else is occupying this space? Who else is, is, is denouncing this powerfully? We must acknowledge too that part of the reason such figures gain in sympathy is because the political and intellectual center of gravity in the Muslim world has steadily shifted in the favor of fundamentalism for the past uh, 20 years. The many democratic movements and progressive civil society organizations that work bravely throughout the Arab and Muslim world have not been as, affecting in, as effective and as convincing in addressing uh, 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 an, or formulating a discourse, rather, that, that addresses mass concerns. More modernist, progressive uh, voices, often associated with Western-educated elites, find themselves increasingly on the defensive and it, 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 it more and more pressured to adapt to a more Islam, more Muslim-than-thou uh, uh, rhetoric. Fundamentalism offers a seemingly simple solutions based on familiar principles. Recent events in Nigeria uh, to, to get out a little bit of the Arab world, and to, to give another example, provide an example for this. Their sharia has been imposed in Muslim states as a result of democratic pressure. People were persuaded that it was an efficient means to bring about order to a chaotic situation, to end problems of corruption, of injustice, and so forth. 
And these rules were, were strict and clear because they were derived from a common tradition. If rights were lost, well, uh, they were rights not habitually recognized in this tradition. And by rights, I'd like to put them in quotes because discourse of citizenship is not something we find in our civilization. The equivalent is one of, of seeking justice, with, and it's a theory of the good. It's, 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 so it's not that Muslims like or accept to be beaten on the head. It's just that the, whole, the, the type of discourse is a different one. Such sentiments were also behind the initial popularity of the Taliban. And we, can, we cannot take it for granted that people will eventually become dissatisfied with and el- eliminate the worst excesses of such a, of such a regime. But both demonstrate that once such a political, socio-political order in, is in place, it is at heart very best, very hard to change. And besides, in the meantime, how many crimes and injustices are committed in the name of Islam? The challenge for Arab and Muslim intellectual, activists, politicians, and leaders alike is to pursue reform in a way that is respectful of popular modes, local culture, and religious tradition, while unafraid to challenge a discourse that insists on looking backward to the reference points of some putative golden age in which all the problems were already solved. We must insist instead that today's problems in today's socially heterogeneous and socially complex world uh, uh, were not solved and the parameters didn't exist given, that, given uh, a social, uh, an ancient social configuration. It is our responsibility rather to answer these questions in the present making respectful, intelligent use of tools we are given in our pre- precious heritage as well as those we have learned from our neighbors, from other religions and other cultures. This was the way of the great Islamic civilization that preserved and used the intellectual achievements of other cultures and other religions. It means advocating unfettered dialogue about how to ensure the protections, protection of essential rights within a regime of popular sovereignty. It means also engaging issues of the relationship between the political and religious spheres forcefully, just as forcefully as with any uh, fundamentalist uh, current. For forward-looking democratic forces in the Muslim world, that involves confronting and reversing the influence of those currents within our religion and within our politics, and this is a very hard task. It is not going to be easy, and it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work. This task, it seems, is being made more difficult by the rapidly developing political, culture, and military reconfiguration of the world since September 11. The attacks of that day were directed against the United States in the name of Islam the most dramatic in what seems to be an ongoing series of attacks. They were presumably carried out by Al-Qaeda and like-minded organization uh, throughout the region. Before these attacks, this network was virtually unknown in the Islamic world. Just to show you how fast something can emerge and occupy the political agenda. In 1988, this front had issued a fatwa, making it a duty for every Muslim to kill civilian and military personnel alike, wherever, wherever uh, uh, they were. And this fatwa went largely ignored, largely unnoticed throughout the region. In short, uh, a fringe of fanatical group, little known but well-organized, well-financed, and with a shrewd sense of media, had demonstrated its will and its capacity to inflict serious murderous damage on the American homeland and had focused its forces on the center stage in a drama, in an unfolding drama between modern politics and Islam. And still the answer to America's reflexive question, why do they hate us so much? 
uh, was that they was a small group, and certainly most Muslims did not hate America. They might resent its abuses of power, some of its arrogant policies on the international level, along with many others in the world, uh, have a touch of, well, now they know what it feels reflex, but they did not uh, wish this on America, and certainly they considered such actions an ab abomination and completely foreign to Islam. This group did not speak for most Muslims and could certainly not goad them into a jihad of generalized murder. And certainly this is, a, this is a, an abominable deformation of what the term means. Muslims, along with many others in the world, were sympathetic to America's victims and understood the legitimate right of the United States to defend itself and to follow the culprits. The United States then had an opportunity to build on the worldwide sympathy and outrage of these attacks by carefully targeting the perpetrators, focusing on their fanatically atavistic core of ideology, as opposed to their instrumentalist use of contentious issues, refusing to lump their actions together with legitimate forms of critique and resistance against policies over which there is legitimate disagreement throughout the world. Soliciting the partnership of all international organizations and all states, including uh, Muslim states. In short, isolating them from a wider mass of Muslims and ensuring that the legitimate effort to bring a few thousand to criminal justice would not evolve into a clash of civilizations against a billion plus Muslims, which everyone wanted to avoid except Biladen and the jihadists. Unfortunately, a year later, we must recognize that events and policies are pointing in the other direction with potentially disastrous consequences. The hunt for Al-Qaeda has become a generalized, inevitably vague and inconsistent war on terror waged by the United States on its own terms. If we, if we agree on terror, on the, in, on the, on the, on the illegitimacy and the, and the unlawful character of killing civilians, how do we judge Hamas, Hezbollah with Al-Qaeda? Do we throw everybody in the same pot? We agree that terrorism uh, should be eradicated and eliminated. What does it tell us about the causes uh, behind the political process behind. Certainly we have to go beyond this and this needs both a legal uh, uh, definition that is not unilateral, that is multilateral, and we need political treatment and this is not happening. Uh, the, the hunt for Qaeda then has become an inevitably inconsistent war on terror waged by the United States on its own terms. In a series of deeply disappointing gestures, the United States first demonstrated its inability to constrain the word excesses of the Israeli state and finally abdicated any attempt to do so, capitulating to Sharon's opportunistic use of precisely the same rhetoric, the war on terror. The abandonment of any pretense of fairness, the lauding of Sharon as a man of peace, and the endorsement of his demonization of Arafat and the Palestinian Authority have put government firmly on the side of the most reactionary forces, not only in Israel, but also, uh, 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 also in, in, on the Muslim street. These moves have also helped to destroy any serious chance for peace between both Israelis and Palestinians. In fact, I don't see why we continue to talk about a peace process. There is no more peace process. What we can hope to, to find is a new path to peace between the two peoples. And the relentless determination to attack Iraq, despite no evidence on its, of its implication in the September 11th attacks, only reinforces the perception that the U.S. is seeking to dominate the region for the sake of oil and geopolitics. 
over the last year, in other words, the U.S. has been losing the widespread sympathy and credibility it's enjoyed, encourage generalized Muslim defensiveness and resentment, and alienating the most, even the most closest Arab and European allies. It is hard to avoid the perception that the United States is embarked on a war on terror as an opportunity to embark in a kind of new imperialist or new imperial project, and that some in the United States will not be unhappy to engage in a clash of civilizations uh, uh, with the violent jihadists, but not only with them, with anyone who resists this, this project as is not submissive uh, enough. In the Muslim world, this also seems to corroborate the vision of these jihadists and strengthening their appeal at the expense of more moderate and democratic voices. As a Jordanian Islamist put it, demonstrating the diversity of Islamist opinion, as well as the danger of this trend, uh, he states, and I quote, this is Laith Shbeilat from Jordan, most Islamists didn't agree with the attack on New York and Washington, but the U.S. reaction radicalized the street. The Western world has disarmed us moderates. This is all the more ironic since, as we mentioned before, it was the policies of the United States which set contemporary globalist jihad or, or jihad new fundamentalism on its apocalyptic path with the financing uh, uh, of the war against, uh, against the Soviet Union, effort in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. In 1988, when he acknowledged that the U.S. had supported the Afghan Mujahideen, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and I quote the question, having supported Islamic fundamentalism, having given arms and advice to future terrorists, Zbigniew Brzezinski replied, regret what? What is most important to the history of the world? Some stirred up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War. There isn't a global Islam. Well, there is now. Not, of course, in the sense that all the divergences but the, and the complexity and richness in Muslim culture has suddenly been disappeared, but had disappeared, but in the sense that a, that a, that a, that a, that a guerrilla movement that has been uh, financed and which now prones jihad has turned against the United States and has attacked it in its own homeland. It uses the same ultra-radical version of Wahhabist Islam that was promoted especially in the Middle East and throughout Central Asia, as the ideological arm against Soviet atheism. But for that ideology, America, the vanguard of modernist culture, is certainly a worse example of impurity and atheism. Perhaps some American strategists today now think that it will be easy to roll over a bunch of stirred-up Muslims with military force alone, but without a sophisticated, concurrent, political, diplomatic and especially ideological strategy, any military offensive will exacerbate the polarization between the United States and the Islamic world. It will lead to upheavals throughout the Muslim world, in which democratic constituencies will find it even more difficult to mobilize, even more difficult to convince, and will increase the probability of prolonged bloody conflicts, whether on the scale of retail terrorism or on the scale of, of, of war between, between states. In short, recent trends within the Islamic world and within the post-September 11 geopolitical agenda being set by the West and the United States, it is both more urgent and more difficult for progressive Muslims to craft an effective strategy for promoting modern democratic governance in our societies. Thank you. <clears throat> A 
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم let me start out by saying that i found maulai hisham's presentation uh, in that presentation sparks of great illumination and if i may start from where he ended i would find myself in great sympathy with the last assertions that he made that the events of the last year it created a wave of sympathy for the united states all across the world including of course the muslim world who found those where those events were found to be as outrageous as in any other part of the world but the manner in which the united states have handled the problem leaves a great deal to be desired which has been very ably and very emphatically pointed out by uh, the learned speaker it's one thing to appreciate the anger of united states anger at the outrageous events that had taken place that's one thing and to act in a state of rage and anger is quite another unfortunately what seems to have happened is that instantly the united states put itself on a course which was animated and propelled by the tragic events of september 11 uh, without carefully um, anticipating the results that they would lead to in fact and getting embroiled in a situation which leads to a an incremental complication and uh, one feels that the more that direction is taken the more difficult it would be to retrace the steps and find a more moderate and a more practical course uh, to build a world which is free of terror in fact in that process the characteristics of the american society and the characteristics of the western society which had endeared it to the rest of the world uh they are becoming compromised and uh if not totally disappearing there's one little thing with which i would like to take issue with uh maulai hisham uh although this is not central to the theme of this afternoon's panel and that is the emphasis that by supporting the struggle for afghan's liberation the united states had created its own uh, an enemy that it had let out of the bottle a gin that at uh, the gin of islamic militancy which is not uh, at all prepared to go back uh, in fact 
So far as the support to Afghanistan Jihad is concerned, I think it would be hard to contend that it had created a worldwide goodwill for the United States, and I can say so, uh, living in that region, in the neighborhood of Afghanistan, um, living in, Afghanistan, in uh, Islamabad, where it's easy to rub shoulders with Afghans of all shades of opinion. There was a great deal of sympathy and uh, goodwill for the United States, and the United States could have built up on that goodwill uh, both to create a better Afghanistan, a more peaceful Afghanistan, a more prosperous Afghanistan, but that opportunity was lost. And the impression that was conveyed to the people concerned, to the Afghanistan, Afghanistan to Afghans in the first place, and also to Pakistanis, that it, there was very little interest in Afghanistan itself, that it was an alliance of convenience, alliance of interest, that what had propelled the United States to take interest in the issue of liberation of Afghanistan was not because there was any feeling of outrage against a small country having been occupied militarily by a superpower, but United States has its own scores to settle. And the, uh, the idea that you had been made pawns in a big global game, rather than there having been a genuine partnership in a good cause, that, uh, that created a enchantment, and that created a feeling of disgust and lack of respect for uh, United States, allow me to say this in without mincing words, and that has led to a, uh, to, to, to a complex of feelings which have been uh, finding, have been ventilated again and again, both in uh, speech and in action, in words and in action. Having said that, uh, let me again pick up another theme with which the learned speaker started this paper is that uh, human societies have not, cannot, and do not live in isolation from the other. They interact, finding things in others that are useful and which they adopt and adapt, finding other things that they would not like to, to, to borrow and to adopt, rejecting something, picking up something else. And this kind of interaction has always happened among societies, including, of course, the Islamic society and the Western society, the two societies that have for long, long centuries been neighbors and have been interacting, interacting sometimes crossing the swords, but very often also interacting at a more constructive level, though what happens at the constructive level is sometimes uh, little perceived. Um, 
as uh, the paper has, has uh, pointed out, that uh, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, the Muslim world began to feel that there are things uh, they can beneficially uh, adopt and adapt from the Europeans uh, from with whom they came into contact. And first of all, there was, of course, the, the question of uh, science and technology, which was most, uh, which was most conspicuously useful uh, for reasons that have been pointed out in the paper. But also, at the same time, the Muslims began to be influenced by aspects of French Revolution, by the, by the idea of democracy, by the idea of representative government, and so on. Uh, the same is true of the fact that the European scientific academic tradition, it won the admiration of Muslims. And uh, all this was happening. Then um, a number of factors came which have not made it possible for the Muslim societies to uh, develop in a more constructive manner. And in this regard, we have to specially focus on the period for the last 50 or 50 years plus, the period when the Muslim societies began to throw off and become independent as much as, uh, as it was possible under the circumstances from the yoke of colonialism. Uh, power, a modicum of power passed on to the Muslim, um, to, to, the, to, the, to the new governments manned by uh, Muslims. So this period has to be very, very critically examined. And while I would not venture to say that, as many speakers have pointed out, that what is going on at the global level um, has little to do with what is happening. Certainly these developments have been impacting on the Muslim societies at times uh, quite in quite a crucial manner. And therefore even the, the question of democracy and the question of good governments, all these have, uh, have <coughs> suffered uh, because of that. All these have been affected by what's happening globally, uh, the way political issues have been handled, the way power has been handled, the way um, uh, cleverly things have been manipulated so that the, in, the, in the economic sphere, the gap between the developed and the underdeveloped has, has, uh, has increased. So far, but I would like to say that uh, the Muslims must, as one of my friends pointed out uh, in the morning session, they must look at their own affairs and at their own performance in a very highly self-critical spirit. And because it is for them to shape their destiny and the way they have been performing, if we keep laying the blame on some outside force only, that would take us nowhere. I might not go as far as uh, to that level of self-criticism which Dr. Ahmad Shahi was perhaps pointing out to, that making uh, the, the, the religious sheikh 
appreciate French wine as much as he would like to. Um, I might not go to that extent, but I certainly go to the extent of saying that the performance of Muslims uh, should be judged very critically by everybody, but most of all by themselves, because it's for them to push, put their house in order. Uh, am I running short of time? It took another few minutes and then... Let me? It's fine, another few minutes. Okay. Now, the issue of democracy, as uh, we know, that in contemporary Muslim thought, up until recently there have been hardly any reservations about it. In fact, as uh, the learned speaker has pointed out, Abdu and Abdu was not the only person, neither in the late 20th century nor in the 20th century, who has been uh, trying to say that it was compatible with Islam. In fact, going far, further than that and saying that it has its roots in the Islamic worldview, in the Islamic teachings. Um, uh, this, uh, but why is it that democracy has not been able to take its roots, that the democratic culture, democratic institutions have not been strengthened? Now, there are a complex of factors that go along with it. And uh, it's hard for me to point out uh, the, uh, the ruling elites and, of course, the foreign factor is there as well. But there is one aspect that I would like to draw your attention to is that we had people who were uh, certainly not only impressed with the democratic idea, the core of it, but would like to have it lock, stock, and barrel without any, any sensitivity to the, uh, to, the, um, to the values, to the traditions, to the specific uh, realities of the Islamic societies. Uh, now, that, I think, has been... Um, one of the factors which has been responsible for not taking this experiment very far. You see, the whole idea of democracy was in the minds of some of us. It was, uh, it was related to the entire Western worldview and, and, and the, the entire paraphernalia of Western civilization and culture, um, every part of it. Uh, now, in an Islamic society, there was no reason why this, the idea of democracy and the plea for, for uh, representative government, for other uh, democratic institutions, should uh, in any way be related to the idea of uh, secularizing the society, to, to, to divorcing it from the Islamic tradition, democracy could have been very easily developed and it would have flourished uh, within the value system of Islam. And a large number of uh, Muslim thinkers and, uh, of course, the middle classes, the educated people, they were all in favor of it. But um, it was a failure to provide it the nourishment from within the 
Islamic tradition on the part of the Muslim societies, which I think has uh, led, at least in part, to the uh, failure of, of democracy to take roots in Muslim societies. I'm reminded of something uh, which I, from my own graduate student days. I read a book by Hazim Zaki Nuseiba on ideas of uh, Arab nationalism. But what I'm going to say has nothing to do with nationalism. Uh, he, uh, while he's a very, very able proponent uh, and a very um, and a very good scholar of Arab nationalism, he at one place points out that uh, one of the failures of Arab nationalism lies in the fact that its exponents have identified it with the with the secular, purely secular Western worldview. And he added that it would be hard to convince the Arabs, a great majority of whom are Muslims, that they ought to secularize themselves merely because France or Germany or someone else has done. I think the same goes about this particular idea which had its roots within the Islamic tradition and within the Islamic system of values, but it could not be indigenized. It could not be made a part of the Muslim social political tradition. Uh, this, I'll uh, stop at that. Uh, thank you very much. How much time do I have? 20 minutes. Really? 15, 20. Um, you need more? No, I don't. Uh, I'm the discussant of uh, Moulay Hisham's paper, and due to a computer glitch, I only got it this morning. Um, so I had to quickly read it during the various sessions here. Um, I think the paper can be broadly divided into two sort of uh, two, two areas, if you like, or two sections. The first is um, sort of a, a tour d'horizon, you know, a history of um, modern, from the 18th century, Islamic political movements, and that sort of, that leads up to the rise of that leads us to the rise of ra radical Salafis, people like Bin Laden. And the second half of the paper is sort of a, if I may use another French expression, a cri de coeur, which is a kind of lamentation about the ability of the radical Salafis to tap into the genuine uh, concerns that Muslims and Arabs feel about um, U.S. foreign policies and treat their treatment uh, at the hands of the West, um, and how these... Um, uh, how these radical Salafis are able to to take advantage of sort of genuine issues and turn the, and capitalize on them so that Muslims are not only attracted to them but that the the ultimate aim of the jihadis is achieved, which is to basically fulfill um, the Samuel Huntington thesis, which is that a clash of civilizations is uh, inevitable. I, I hope I've sort of done some justice to, to 
in my recapitulation of, of the paper. I, I think there are some very uh, powerful ideas um, I'm here. Um, but I shall go back to the notion, to the point of democracy for just a moment, if I, if I may. Modern Muslims inherit an Islamic legal tradition that um, is extremely rich, but uh, at times very contradictory. Um, and, and they have to make sense of it for themselves. For example, um, just to give you a, 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 a feeling for, for, the, for, the, uh, for some of the contradictions in, in, in the tradition. One of the, um, one of the traditions of the Prophet says that um, uh, as you are, you will be ruled. In other, uh, which in Arabic is kama which basically means uh, you deserve the rulers you get. Um, another tradition of the Prophet says that uh, my community will never agree on an error. And from that latter tradition, um, the, that my, la tajma' ummati ala khata is the Arabic, it, many ideas about uh, sort of um, democratic politics can be derived from that. If enough Muslims, let's say, will agree on something, then that thing becomes Islamic. And so presumably if enough uh, Muslims, uh, specifically the scholars though, um, agree on a form of political practice, then that political practice uh, becomes uh, part of Islam, part of Islamic law. And, um, and I think um, a lot of modern Muslim political thinkers have tried to capitalize on this notion that um, if enough Muslims get together and agree on something, then we can maybe then through democracy, democracy becomes the vehicle for producing this consensus. We can then generate a new form of law or a new basis for a political practice. My, from my reading though, it seems to me that over the last hundred years, a lot of the, um, the, the kind of the, the approach to um, developing new political ideas and political theory is, can be um, described as a process of um, sort of uh, ad hocism. Basically, if something is convenient because it's either fashionable or because it is needed by the ruler, uh, then some scholar or jurist will come up and, and produce a book or an opinion that corroborates this um, point of view or a certain theory. So there is an element of um, what I call ad hocism, which um, demeans and diminishes the tradition. Um, and in particular, because modern Muslim states or modern Arab states uh, are so much more powerful than they've ever been before and so much more intrusive in the lives of ordinary Muslims, they often have tried to co-opt uh, scholars to produce and generate ideas that ultimately um, legitimize whatever it is that uh, given ruler wants to legitimize. And that cheapens Islam uh, in the eyes of most Muslims because most Muslims are obviously not stupid and they see what's going on and that these rulers are trying to do this. And it's also diminished the kind of uh, the status of the scholar in, in Islamic society. So that in the last hundred years, I think it's safe to say that the best and brightest, the most intelligent people who in pre-modern times would have all become scholars are now becoming doctors and engineers and and it's not really the uh, the cream 
the best people who join the ranks of the scholars. So there's been a kind of intellectual decline on a whole uh, range of uh, a whole range of uh, areas, if you like. Um, and and the role of the state. Uh, I, I, if I may, just raise the, a point with uh, Professor Ridwan Sayed, who said, who earlier described how um, how um, the that politics should be somehow separated from the religious discourse, if one can do that, because there's no need for a reform in Islam. And I agree with him that there's no need for uh, the West now going to Muslims and telling them, well, if only you have a reformation, then you can be like us and life would be wonderful. Um, I, I, I do think, however, that the, the role that Muslim states play in uh, determining um, if you like religious and legal fashions or uh, states of mind is extremely important. It is no coincidence that the radical Salafis or Salafis in general are dominant in the Muslim world today, even though historically they are a marginal, a very marginal uh, group in terms of numbers. It's no, it's, not, it's no coincidence that they are dominant today uh, because the richest country in the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, happens to have funded them for the last uh, 70 or 80 years. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, th there's no secret to it. So presumably, if a very rich state were to fund uh, more traditional Hanafi scholars, let's say, or modernizing Hanafi or Shafi'i scholars, then uh, in one generation, perhaps even less, you would see a very different religious um, scholarly uh, atmosphere in most of the Muslim world. Um, so, so state intervention, state funding is crucial in determining the kind of uh, discourse that is uh, that becomes prevalent in the Muslim world. And I think that has been true, actually, uh, um, maybe not for all time, but certainly where the state comes down often will um, push orthodoxy, Muslim orthodoxy, in one direction uh, as opposed to another. Um, so, so, uh, so um, I mean, I'm throwing these ideas out, and they are being generated from this paper. Um, democracy is, since this is the topic of the panel, I think is a very problematic um, political concept uh, for Muslim jurists, um, precisely because uh, what Mullah Sham said, I mean, fundamental to democracy is this notion of citizenship and and citizenship as a concept uh, presumes uh, the equality of, uh, of people regardless, let's say, of, uh, or at least now, uh, regardless of uh, sex, uh, religion, creed. Um, there's still, of course, discrimination based on age, but, but not on sex or on creed. And, and that is uh, difficult to, uh, to accommodate in Islamic law because a Muslim and a non-Muslim are simply not equal in many ways. For example, in the... Uh, providing testimony in court, right? Uh, a Muslim woman, for example, could, can never marry a non-Muslim man. So there are all kinds of legal, specific, very specific legal injunctions that uh, would make a truly uh, secular democratic culture based on the notion of citizenship uh, impossible in most parts of the Muslim world who really want to, in, in parts of the Muslim world where Islamic law wants to be applied. 
I mean fully applied. And, and uh, this is, for example, something that one sees in my own country, Lebanon, where uh, there was a move to uh, bring in civil marriage, and um, which would permit uh, Muslims and non-Muslims to get married under, I mean Muslims and non-Muslims could still get married in Muslim courts, uh, Christians could still get married in Christian courts, but should a Muslim and a, and a Christian wish to get married, they could get married under this civil court. At the moment, in Lebanon, or for that matter, in Israel, or any other Arab country, if you want to get ma- if a Muslim and, and, a, and a Christian wish to get married, they have to go to Cyprus. So, the uh, where civil marriage is, is permissible. Anyway, c- civil marriage. There was a, um, a move by one of the Le- Le- Lebanese president to Im- to bring in civil marriage into Lebanon, and uh, the clamor and the opposition was uh, unanimous from all the religious leaders across the divide, whether it was the Christian um, cardinal or the Muslim clerics. Um, So that even in what I would consider one of the more progressive, let's say, or open Arab countries, there's a very strong resistance to uh, basic uh, reforms that would be needed to truly engender um, a democratic culture where all citizens are, are... are equal before the law. Um, that that's um, and unless you know Islamic law is completely reformed in ways that I, I don't see happening at the moment, except perhaps by Muslims in the West. I find that some of the most interesting Islamic uh, legal argumentation and legal formulations are coming out. Uh, by Muslims who live in the West, many of whom are converts, but some are actually Muslims living uh, here. And they are bringing about uh, and writing new ideas, new formulations that um, are extremely interesting and novel and apply more specifically to the condition of a Muslim living in, uh, in a Western country. But some of that is actually filtering back, I think, to, to the Middle East. and. So, and there are some people, including one uh, graduate of, uh, of NES, uh, a man called Khalid Abul Fadl, has been trying to engage in a very kind of reformist uh, activism, basing himself here. And, but that has yet to be seen. I mean, the, the, um, the um, outcome of that process of reform that is taking place by Muslims in the West, uh, the, its success or failure is yet to be seen, because it's still in, in very early days. Um, I, I, I do have to perhaps uh, end on a note that uh, I agree wholeheartedly with Moulin Hisham that uh, I traveled throughout the Middle East and in South Asia this summer and it was clear to me that uh, the way the United States has reacted to September 11th has clearly alienated a vast majority of, of, of certainly every person I, I met and interviewed uh, was um, hateful of the United States. And I think, uh, to a great extent, uh, bin Laden has won the at least the political battle of making Muslims in many parts of the Muslim world hate America. He hasn't won the theological battle. In other words, he hasn't made Muslims hate Americans because they're Christians or Jews or, or atheists. But certainly politically, I think his move and the way and the kind of reaction he's provoked has been very effective. And, um, and if 
uh, America goes into Iraq, that will only exacerbate matters and make matters much worse. Um, and I frankly don't – I mean, I'm at a loss as to how one can remedy the present situation. I, I thought long and hard about it. I even wrote an article, which I hope will appear tomorrow in tomorrow's New York Times, about, you know, the kind of voice of the moderate Muslims or the, the, lack, the lack of it. And, and um, I, I'm at a loss, given the present com political configurations and the way America is dominant and the way that it, it seeks to behave and wants to behave in the Middle East, and the way Arab regimes are complicit in this policy of uh, brutalizing their own populations and um, completely silencing any form of opposition, whether Islamic or otherwise. Uh, there is very little room for uh, any form of opposition that gives people hope. And it's clear from uh, what Mullah Hisham said about that the radical Islamists sometimes seem to represent the only counter-ideology, the only ideology that seems to speak to the deep-felt sentiments of injustice, corruption, foreign domination, and so on, that many people feel there. I mean, it's absolutely true. It is absolutely true. And there is no other voice, it seems, that can generate the kind of response that the radical Islamists are able to generate on a pan-Islamic kind of uh, um, field. Within individual countries, it's, matters become more complicated. But certainly on the, on the broad spectrum of, of the entire Muslim world, there's, we're in, in the worst, uh, I mean, we live certainly in the most interesting times. I'm very happy to be living today and not, let's say, during the Cold War when things were boring. Uh, but uh, so we do live in interesting times. And I gather in China it's an insult to uh, tell someone, may you live in interesting times. But I, I'm happy for it. Uh, but it, I, I, I can't imagine a bleaker period uh, for the Muslim world. And, and as Westerners, we have to be extremely sensitive to that. I will end there. We have uh, approximately 20 minutes or so left for discussion. Uh, Dr. Shai. Do we have a mic anywhere? Thank you. Um, thank you very much. My question is to Prince Hisham. I don't know whether you could reflect on what I'm going to say. Fundamentalist, Muslim fundamentalists in general, is really basically the religion of the text. How sheikhs, mullahs, sayyid interpret the Quran, the hadith to the ordinary people. They are consulted on various matters. What fundamentalists have done is to rob the masses of the mysticism, the flutter of the heart and the luminosity of the heart from it. Because many of the ordinary people do not understand these texts. What they understand is to create an alternative society of Ikhwan, and that is the Ikhwan al-Safa. Is, this is what relate people and what fundamentalists, the Maududi's followers and Hassan al-Turabi, demonizing those people, saying those people are tabaiya, they have no room within Islam. And that, don't you think this is really um, a 
crucial issue to look at for Muslims, not to ban these mystical orders because they perform such an important function. It's 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 not only that they be able that they have been able to hijack the interpretation of the text. You got to understand also that I mean the the the. the Sometime in the Middle Ages, the whole the whole uh, the whole tradition of ishtihad has been conveniently closed by Arab regimes themselves in the name of completeness, so that no political authority would be legitimized or delegitimized without the control of the central authority. So it's not as if they have been uh, you know have been had, had made some kind of a prowess. The terrain was already there. So that's that's. The only way to correct that would be for, uh, for a more acceptance, a more mainstream acceptance of, of ishtihad, and I don't see that happening. That's the first reason in my evaluation. Secondly, taking the opposite direction of Muslim fundamentalists would be perceived, would be perceived uh, from Muslim masses as um, conforming to what the West wants to see in, in, uh, in, in Islamic societies. And that places the, the very the proponents of such, a, you know, of such an approach in, 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 a, in a kind of problematic situation. I'm not saying that they should do it, but they should do it. And the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the people who have been more, more intelligent about approaching this issue of reform and have been the most effective are those that have done it within you know, within uh, within this, within the society, and within also uh, within the the reservoir of of ulamas around around the world, whether whether it be in, in Azhar, whether it be in in in, uh, in Morocco uh, or anywhere else. So it's a, it, it's it's not so much as as the substance of the discourse. It's it's more in the eyes of who who you're allied with, and with the perception of of cultural encroachment. Uh, that people have of the West on their on their culture and the revitalization which is that created, anyone who seeks that kind of uh, that kind of, a, of approach will be at a disadvantage. Uh, again, uh, maybe somebody like Abdul Karim Shurush or somebody like on this panel could could be more effective in, in answering that question. And I'm not a alim or a theologian or. or, or or a, a philosopher, but but it seems to me that that that's the equation. It's a, it's a question of, of a perceived uh, you know a perceived uh, equation of, of of power. I mean, that's that's my that's my my understanding. And also, um, I think what was what was said as a follow up to that. I think what's happening in in in, in Europe, in the Muslim communities in Europe, is very inspiring. I mean, it's very important, and there you're having uh, uh, you're having ishtihad as a result of of uh, the discrimination which people are knowing in their communities. Discrimination. Well, you stand out as a community, and you, we're not going to let you stand out as that community that way, or that you have to become a Muslim of the Republic. In the case of 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 of, of, of the French. Uh, which is which is very very antagonistic. People feel the need uh, to get away from that, to fight that, and to thus create 
not create, but 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 to to project an Islam which which keeps their singularity, uh, and thus they have to they have to address the, the central issues. Again, this is a profound question that, but more has to do with philosophy and theology, and less with you know with the other things which I'm more I'm more familiar with. Professor Ridwan Sayed. We, we have had a big civilization, a big culture, rich and uh, uh, pluralist and religious and cultural means. But it is now a nostalgia. In the beginning of the of this uh, century, we were all glad with the uh, uh, Islam of the reformers against these Islamic traditional uh, systems who cannot answer. The, the, the challenging question, challenging question of the societies with, with Islamic mysticism, Islamic uh, uh, Sufi orders, and Islamic uh, law schools, uh, a very rich tradition, but it is now a past. Uh, we did not know at that time, uh, we were glad with Muhammad Abdu and Jamal Din Afghani and all the uh, other reformers in Northern Africa, with Hajawi, with uh, 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 with Al-Naqd al and Maqasid al-Shari'a, goals of the, of, uh, we are, uh, uh, pleased with all of, uh, of these who, uh, were substitutes, we thought that substitute, Islamic reform substitute to this Islamic traditionalism. Now, we did not know that, uh, will come, uh, 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 as a substitute, uh, uh, the Islamic revivalism. We, uh, which uh, uh, textual uh, take text as uh, symbols and has uh, strategies and politics working with the texts directly uh, against history, against uh, traditions, uh, uh, against renewal in, in the sense of continuity, continuity. So we cannot know, uh, come back to a so-called neo-traditionalism. I don't think uh, the project, uh, something, some uh, people like Khalid Abul Fadl here, is, what is he doing, and many others uh, by us in the Arabic and Islamic world, they are coming back to so-called neo-traditionalism, uh, uh, to uh, dwell on these uh, uh, rich traditions and try to revive so-called liberal Islam. Even that is the project of the Arab leftists, Islamic leftists in the 60s and 70s, to, uh, to, to search in the past, in the Islamic past, for so-called progressive Islam. That is all projects uh, are not, now not here. We have to challenge this Islamic revivalism uh, uh, with uh, 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 a new reform. But... That is, uh, it is, it is, uh, uh, they are mixed movements. Uh, uh, between mysticism and revivalism, and they they are all also uh, not here anymore. I am not also not of the opinion that Wahhabiya, the Wahhabi, the original Wahhabis, revivalists, they are revivalists, but they are not uh, the uh, uh, like the people of Al Jama'a Al Islamiyya and Al Ikhwan Muslimun. They are the in that is the revivalist Islam of of the present. The uh, Wahhabis, they are another brand. They, uh, uh, sure, uh, they are, uh, they influenced the so-called Islamic revivalism. But in the 60s and the 70s, 
they came, the Pakistanis and the Egyptians, they came to Saudi Arabia. These uh, 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 politicized Wahhabi, they are influenced by the Islamic revivalism of the Islamic centers, big centers. It is not the old Wahhabiya of the beginning of the, of the uh, 20th century. I mean, I will end that Islamic traditionalism is not to think about anymore, not also in notions of so-called neo-traditionalism to uh, make something from the past. It is a nostalgia. It is a scholarly work to interpret and reinterpret and analyze and, and uh, understand and overcome. That is with Islamic traditionalism. And so we can, perhaps through this critical process, perhaps we can make Islamic reform. But it is not to... Uh, it, does, it has nothing to do and or, or, or uh, not many things to do with uh, what we are uh, uh, discussing here. How can we uh, uh, make a uh, real political life uh, uh, enriched with uh, uh, Islamic values if people uh, like that? That is a, another uh, uh, procedure and another venture. Thank you. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, no. Uh, only two. Uh, two brief uh, observations. Uh, the first is, I mean, uh, not only in this uh, debate, in all the debates nowadays concerning the uh, the uh, issues raised by. Uh, uh, 11-9 or 9-11, it's always Islam and the West. Uh, for each 100 times uh, Islam is mentioned, you find one uh, time the Muslim or the Muslims are mentioned. I prefer, in principle, a sort of turning the debate upside down and giving the uh, uh, priority to the human beings, not the ideologies and the essentials, because these things lead us to a closed uh, debate, which would, would open on nothing, actually. While if we uh, debated from the angle of, of uh, uh, Muslims, uh, it, I mean, it, uh, it gives, uh, it creates a uh, a room to debate human rights, immigration, employment, many, many other movable things. And when we talk then about democracy and Muslims, we can see the real results uh, in numbers, if you like. So this is uh, one. Two, many times uh, now and in the morning, the, uh, the American uh, Pakistani Afghani uh, venture uh, in 1979 uh, was mentioned. I think, contrary to uh, the way it was portrayed by some uh, colleagues, this uh, this uh, 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 context represented a certain short. Uh, alliance between two forces, liberals and religious. 
This was embodied by the personality of Ronald Reagan then, as a guy, a religious guy, uh, very much anti-abortion, and on the other hand, uh, free markets, and of course, very anti-communist. I think the crisis was established then, at that time, because then the priority was given to combating communism, whatever the price, come what may. And on the, on the ideological level, some heresies were blown up, like Marxism is like fascism, which is totally uh, 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 false. I, I'm not preaching any totalitarian regime, any Soviet Union, etc., but Marxism is something and fascism is something. Marxism is the offspring of enlightenment. Fascism is anti-enlightenment and very barbarian from A to Z. So there's no way to compare. What I want to, uh, to, to, to uh, reach at is what happened in 1979 is not something it is, uh, if we want to review the past, we have to start from this. Uh, incident, a very, the very, very dangerous one which took place then. Allying liberalism, allying itself with the most fundamental and reactionary forces just in order to combat communism. I think, uh, uh, Professor Nyang, would you like a, yeah, yeah, I just want to. Uh, and then, and then, and then you answer. I, 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 I'm very, Please, with your intellectual uh, guided tour that you gave us with regard to what has transpired intellectually among the Muslims over the last hundred years, you can go from Afghani all the way through Hassan al-Banna to present times. I think the Muslims have to really look at things historically, uh, but with critical lenses. This way they can be critical of themselves, they can criticize others, but at the same time, they will know their strengths and weaknesses. When you talk about your travels in the Muslim world and the sentiments expressed with regard to Osama bin Laden and 9-11, of course you have two points of view. You have Muslims who find themselves in the third world where they have gone through all the pangs and the bitterness of third world-ism when the conflict between the communist world and the capitalist world rage. But the Muslims could not articulate their grievances with Marxist rhetoric or Marxist concepts. And that's one reason why communism could be outmaneuvered by the West because the West in this regard had many things in common, not only the carrot and the stick on the one hand, but they also have the psychic and philosophical balls on their side when it comes to the Muslims. And that's why you have these strange bedfellows between the most radical and most conservative Muslims like the Taliban and others fighting on the side of America and the West against the communists on the one hand, but at the same time, when that marriage of convenience became no longer useful, they were dumped because it was the odd couple. The question I want to raise now for you, since you observe this phenomenon, and uh, uh, Mulai Hassan, I mean Hassan. Misham. Misham, Misham. The question really is this. My friend over here raised the role and place of the Sufi, the mystical dimension. I think what is happening, based on your intellectual guided tour that you gave, 
based on what is happening in the Muslim world today, is that you find Muslims living in different dimensions of the Islamic experience. And some of them, some of my colleagues have already identified those people who are strictly traditionalists, and there's a whole history about that. Those who are modernists, there's a whole history about that. And those who are so-called, quote-unquote, fundamentalists or political Islamists, who have an agenda and they want to realize the same third worldism that Franz Fanon talked about. And that's why Ali Sariati was very much influenced by Fanon. The reality here is, what are the Muslims, how are Muslims going in Morocco, for example, appropriate the resources of Sufism in the service of modernity and in the service of democratization? Because usually the Islamic fundamentalists are seen as threats to the system. Now, that communism is gone, and they, they are the most uh, uh, vibrant, most active, most militant system challengers in the Muslim world, whether in Saudi Arabia, where they have been, to some extent, eliminated by the Wahhabi philosophy, because Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was very much opposed to Sufism. And that's one reason why today you find in America, and you will hear me speaking about this tomorrow, you find people like Sheikh Hassan Kabani very much railing against the Salafis and the Wahhabis in this regard. Okay. Uh, I think now members of the panel uh, can uh, respond to these questions because we are running out of time. So, uh, Bernard, do you want to you want to? Actually, I comments? thought they were more like comments rather than questions. Fine. Okay. I mean, if you want to comment on the comments. comments. No, I'm, I'm okay. Okay. No, yes, on this, uh, first of all, the, maybe we can, uh, we can organize all these questions together. Uh, just on, on, the, on the field, when one talks about democratization, one, one doesn't necessarily have to say, well, how are the texts interpreted? Is it favorable? Is it not favorable? One can just depart from the principle Okay, let's not let's let's for a while forget if Islam is liberal or not liberal, or you know we can fundamentally one recognizes that that Islam sees in unconstrained and unbalanced political authority, unchecked political authority is a problem. Okay, and that's a fundamental you know it's a fundamental asset in Islam. Authority that is unchecked by by the Khalif or by uh, by the general or by the Hizb al-Bath or whatever is a problem. That is ammunition for democracy. We don't need to theorize about, about things like this. I am on the field. I will let uh, somebody who's, who's more qualified than me, like uh, Professor Sorush or anybody, theorize on what this, this more means more precisely. But I depart from the, from the, from the principle that, you know, from a practical uh, principle that, look, authority has, has you know, a problem when it's unchecked. And we have uh, discourses calling for democratic elections or not. Uh, throughout the Arab world now, you, you don't have the pretension, well, that uh, elections are not right. Oh, elections are not right. That's why they're rigged. So let, that's a theoretical debate, and it's important you know, to, uh, to, come back, to come back to that. On this issue of Afghanistan, uh, you're right. It's not just it's a process. It's not just an event, but you know, it's, it's an important one. Al-Qaeda was there, you had bases there, you had essentially this is the ideological and the organizational you know, uh, nerve center of this, of, this, of, of this movement. It just can't be treated just simply as one discrete 
event. So that is, you know, as we would say in, in, in Arabic, a mahatta. It's a, it's a state. But you are right in, in the sense that uh, what I call or others would call neo-fundamentalist or is this radicalized, you know, uh, Wahhabiya in this sense, is itself emerges from the crisis that, that fundamentalist, fundamentalist movements have known. Fundamentalist movements have known a crisis, uh, you know, from 1979 to 1995 at the, at the zenith of the, of the war, civil, civil war in Algeria. They have not been able to capture power everywhere. In fact, they have receded in many, in many places. That is not, that has also led or helped the emergence of this type of, of neo-fundamentalism because this type of neo-fundamentalism based on jihad is itself the crisis of fundamentalist movements and not being able to bring responses to their struggle within the national context. So what is it? As one says in French, on renvoie. One, one goes back to the, to the individual who, who is, has to conform to a strict uh, uh, to a strict code of behavior uh, and the ummah then becomes just something uh, you know utopical which is very rhetorical so it, it, it is in a sense part of, part of, a, of, a, of a process the, for the last, last question as far as the Islamic experience yes I mean Muslim fundamentalism as we know it feast style uh, as in Algeria and or maybe even you know Adl al-Ihsan is in Morocco or, or Islah as elsewhere have failed and people are attracted to that discourse on the street level but they know it can't bring responses uh, and but that does not mean that there has been a loss of religiousness on the contrary even in Algeria you see more people wearing the scarf now than they were at the height of the Algerian you know, civil war when it was really a grassroots movement. That does not mean there is a decrease in religious. In fact, more uh, Islamic societies have been re-Islamicized by Sufi orders and also by the policies of the state. The state to fight political Islam has uh, created its own brand of political Islam, which is official Islam, and both have nourished uh, you know societies in in this in this direction. The question is, well, how do we how do we make the better use for it to take it towards a, a, a direction that accepts multipartism, that accepts and that can work with these tools on the terrain? And also, one of the you know one of finally one of the the, the, the reproaches one can make to this kind of analysis is that everything is concentrated on political Islam, political Islam as being a parameter in the overall equation of democratization. This is not the only parameter. It's one parameter in a very complex uh, equation. There are other problems which dampen democracy in the Arab world, the role of elites. We have problematic elites in the Arab world. You know, in the Maghreb, they, are, uh, they have been created by the state. They are in, totally dependent from the state, and they cannot have independent agendas. In the Gulf, they are economically... Uh, they are very economically vibrant and, and, and independent, but they are seen as too Western. There are also problems of resources in Algeria, where you have a state that has uh, that has petroleum revenues. You have people, you have processes like in Venezuela or elsewhere, where you have frozen political transformations. You have problems of economic security in most uh, in Egypt, in Morocco. People are more preoccupied in, 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 in how they can live their daily lives, and they are not secured 
and at a level where they can have political empowerment. So, you know, in, in Lebanon you have the pro- problem of, this, you know, of, of a Syrian presence. So all this is a complex equation. We just can't look at you know, Islam through the manifestation of political Islam, whether it's state-sponsored or other, as being the only problem. We are perhaps you know, giving it too much weight as a parameter, and this is something one should, one should keep in mind. And on that, well, I would like to thank the, 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 the panel, I would like to thank the organizers, I would like to thank the audience for all having contributed to a very rich and thought-provoking day, and for further illumination, you are invited to reconvene here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. So thank you very, very much.